Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Uh, how many of you, no, I'm not going to have you raise your hands. Uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot like that. Good. I'm glad. Own a donkey. No, I'm just kidding. You own a donkey? No, I'm just kidding. No, seriously, we have been doing a 60-day challenge. Can I be honest with you? It has been a challenge. Not because I am not reminded every hour on the hour, but sometimes when I'm reminded every hour on the hour, it's not convenient for me. Have you found that to be true through this process? Uh, but do we only God? Uh, do we only God? Do we only go to God when it's convenient? That's one of the lessons I'm learning in this process of this daily challenge for these 60 days on taking 60 seconds out of every hour to welcome God into that next hour with me to say, I love you. You are welcome in this space in my life, and I give you this next hour. Show me how you want me to work with you in this next hour to bring about your will, your ways, and your glory. It's as simple as that, but it is challenging because I may be in the middle of something at that moment. I may be in the middle of a conversation. I may be uh, in the middle of an operating procedure. Actually, I don't operate, but if I did, you definitely would want prayer, all right? This challenge has been good, though. We have a way for you to connect with us online to let us know some of the stories of how this 60-day challenge has not only challenged you, but has been a benefit to you. Tell me some of your stories. Let us know what's going on as you've committed to the 60-day challenge. Yes, let us know some of the challenges you have. We have a way that you could post online anonymously. You could write us a note and let us know how this challenge is affecting you or challenging you and drop it in the offering boxes or by the Welcome Center. Uh, but please communicate to us and let us know how this challenge is affecting you, not only here in this space, but those of you who are watching today uh, from a remote location, all right? We're going to get into our series this morning about evil unveiled. It's Breaking Bad is a series we've been in, and we're talking about the consequences of sin. Where is a good God in a world where there is sin and death? It seems like a contradiction in terms, but it's really not. When you consider the very nature of God, who is love, who is good, who is holy, who is righteous, and cannot be those things unless he allows the objects of his love to have freedom to choose him or to reject him. And so we've been looking at the creation narrative early on in, in Genesis uh, in January, and now we're looking at when does God say it's not good? When do things become not good within God's good creation? And so we're looking today at Genesis chapter 3, uh, and you could turn there at your leisure. We'll get to it in just a moment. But Genesis 3, verses 1 through 11, we'll be reading in just a moment. It is a five-point message today. Don't groan. It inevitably happens, and somebody said, no, that's a lie. It inevitably happens that the more points in one of my sermons, the 
shorter my sermon is. I don't know why that works out. If I had a one-point message, it would probably be super long because I think I have to fill the space. But when I have long, uh, more points in a message, I feel like, okay, I'm going to get through this real quick. So we're going to get through this, though, but I couldn't find a way to make it less points than what it is. These 11 verses are so full of information that it honestly could be multiple messages. Suffice it to say, it is a five-point message. A modern-day fable reads like this. Listen up. A professor once asked a class of students, did God create everything that exists? One brave student piped up in the middle of class and said, well, yes, he did. God created everything, the professor asked. Are you sure about that? Yes, sir, the student replied. And the professor answered, well, if God created everything... Then God created evil, since evil exists. And according to the principle that our works define who we are, then God is evil. After that response, the student became really quiet because he didn't know how to respond. The professor was quite pleased with himself, thinking he had destroyed the faith of another well-meaning and well-intentioned believer in Christ. And he boasted to the students that he had proven once more that the Christian faith is a myth. That if there is truly a God and he created everything, then he created evil. And if he created evil, then he's not truly good. Maybe you have asked that yourself. Why does evil exist in a world where God created everything and everything God created was supposed to be good? Another student raised his hand that day and said, Professor, may I ask you a question? Different student. Well, of course, the professor replied. The student stood up in respect to the professor, and he said, does cold exist? What kind of a question is that? Of course it exists. Have you ever been cold? The professor retorted, and of course, the rest of the class begins to snicker in affirmation of the sarcastic response. And rather than being deterred by the professor's sarcastic response, the young man replied, in fact, sir, cold does not exist. According to the laws of physics, what we consider cold is in reality the absence of heat. Every body or object is susceptible to study when it has or transmits energy, and heat is what makes a body or matter have or transmit energy. Absolute zero, which is approximately negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit, like some of the coldest days of winter in western Pennsylvania, is the total absence of heat. All matter, down to the molecular level, stops at absolute zero. It becomes inert or incapable of reaction at that temperature. Cold, he goes on to say, does not exist. We have created this word to describe how we feel when there is no heat. And the student continued, can I ask you one more question? Of course. Does darkness exist? Well, of course it does. Flip out the light, you'll see. Well, the student replied, once again, you're wrong, sir. Darkness does not exist either. Darkness is in reality the absence of light. Light we can study, but we cannot study darkness. In fact, we can, 
use Newton's prism to break light into the many faceted colors and study the various wavelengths of each color. You cannot measure darkness, however. You can only measure light. A simple ray of light can break into a world, uh, can break into a world of darkness and illuminate it. How can you know that dark, excuse me, how can you know how dark a certain space is? You have to measure the amount of light that is present in order to measure how dark a space is. Isn't that correct, sir? Darkness is just a term used by man to describe what happens when there is no light present. And finally, the young man said, can I beg one more question of you? Does evil exist, sir? Now with uncertainty, the professor responded, of course it does. As I've already said, we see it every day. It's in the daily example of man's inhumanity to man. It is in the multitude of crimes and violence everywhere in the world. These manifestations are nothing else if they're not evil. To this, the student replied, evil does not exist, sir, or at least it does not exist unto itself. Evil is simply the absence of God. It's like darkness and cold, a word that man created to describe God's absence. God did not create evil. Evil is a result of what happens when humans don't have God's love present in their hearts. It's like the cold that comes when there's no heat or the darkness that comes when there's no light. Now, this story has been attributed to Albert Einstein as being that student. I did some research. It is just a modern-day fable, and there's no evidence that Albert Einstein was that student. But the truth of the story is still applicable when you consider that evil, yes, exists, but it doesn't exist in and of itself. Evil is the absence of God being present. When God turned people over in the Bible to their own selves when he hardened the Pharaoh's heart or situations like that. Do you know what a hardening of a heart is? It's where God has completely retracted himself from the presence of that individual where he's not hammering away at the hardness of the heart anymore and it just remains as hard as it ever was. When God comes into a space, there is light, illumination, there is truth, there is wholeness, there is goodness, but in the absence of God, there is none of that stuff. God's absence means the antithesis of all that God brings into a situation. When God comes into a situation, we oftentimes feel uncomfortable. Why? Because sometimes when we are uncomfortable, it's because there is some sin in us some evil within us that we are not willing to let go of. That we are not willing to release and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. To allow God to have that space that that stronghold in our life already has is to allow evil to continue to persist in our own lives and to keep God at bay. But when a person comes to Christ in full surrender, saying, Lord, you can have all of the space in every part of who I am, then he is allowed to come in and take everything out and be fully present with you. The sad truth is the church doesn't always believe this. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Church of God. The Catholic Church, I'm talking about the body of Christ who are called by the name of Jesus Christ 
who is Lord and Savior. We speak a good game, but we allow darkness in, evil in, and we keep God at bay through a process I call, or not I call, the Bible calls doubt. <laughs> what is evil? Evil as a noun is defined like this. Natural evil and moral evil. Most philosophers will tell you you can narrow evil down into those two quadrants. Either it's natural evil or moral evil. What's the difference? Natural evil are things like earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes that cause vast devastation across the globe, poisonous snakes, those kind of things that were not a part of God's original design that could harm humanity. When you say, well, where did all of that stuff come from? Well, there is a place we're going to go to in just a moment that opens a Pandora's box of evil into the world where God separates from humans, not because he wants to, but because he has to, because of what they've already done and what he had already warned them would happen if they did it. Evil, in its natural sense, is what happens in the natural environments. Some people die of heat exhaustion because the temperatures get too hot. Some people die of, of hypothermia because it gets too cold outside. Natural evils exist that can harm the human being. But moral evils exist. Now, here's a trickier one. We know that natural evils exist and that there is a God of the natural order because he put everything in place, created everything that there is or was. But if we deny that there is a God who created everything, then we deny that there is a moral basis to determine what is right and what is wrong. Would you agree with me on that? So how then would you define moral evils? If there is no defining subject matter or Jesus, in our movement, we say Jesus is the subject. If he is not the subject, then there is no moral center. And so then we define a moral center without God as being whatever I want it to be. This is what we call relativism or postmodernism in our current society and world. Whatever you want to be true is true for you. Whatever I want to be true is true for me. And then when we function and work from our own basis of moral truths, then what happens when my moral truth comes in conflict with yours? You have modern-day examples of this, don't you? Have you ever turned on the TV? Well, I don't know if we do TV anymore. Have you ever turned on YouTube or whatever? Have you ever looked at any of the news channels to see things that defy what you think you're seeing? Wait, is that truly a plane flying into a building? Are those riots happening? Are these cars plowing over groups of people? No, this has to be a movie. But the person behind the wheel of the car driving through a crowd of people, well, it, that was their truth. Right? They had a moral basis by which to do what they're doing, and they were very passionate about it. And so then we begin to justify. Now, we say we don't, but is society getting better or worse? Yes. 
justification happens. And then we subcategorize ourselves off into racial groups and sexual or gender groups. So we, what happens is we have so divided ourselves as a nation. Do you know whose tactic dividing is? Is it God's? No. Let's circle back to the question. What is evil? Where does it come from? And how do we know that evil is wrong if we have no center or basis for morality other than what I think is right versus what you think is right? Well, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, that is the serpent, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Oh, I've got five points. I'm not going to stop there. All right, verse 2. <clears throat> of course we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. Did she name the tree? Do you notice something interesting and absent? What other tree was in the middle of the garden? Huh. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Again, there's something different in that response, isn't there? This is not against gender roles here. Please understand me. This is about sin, death, and evil. Oh, you won't die, <laughs> the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Is he telling the truth, or is he lying? <laughs> He's telling... The truth, except for the first point. Oh, you won't die. He's giving partial truth. In our home, when we were raising our kids, we said a partial truth is a lie. We treated it as such. You could tell us most of the truth. Let's say you said 99.9% .9 of the truth if you were one of our children. Guess what we would call it? A lie. Right? We would call it a lie. You either tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, or we got a spanking coming. And then some other things that might happen. Oh, you were a spanker. Yeah. I grew up getting spanked. If it was good for me, it's good for them. No, I'm just kidding. That's horrible, That's horrible psychology. Uh, we only spanked for direct disobedience, not for childish behavior. Okay? Or at least we tried to. All right. Verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. What was it about the tree? We were not told up to this point what the tree looked like. We still aren't told what it looked like, but we are given descriptors of it. What is it? What, what does she see in the tree? It's beautiful. And its fruit looked delicious. It had to be chocolate hanging from the tree. <laughs> right? Chocolate heart. Yay. And you guys still eat it. Mm -mm -mm. And we don't know what the fruit was, but the tree looked beautiful. 
And its fruit, man, its fruit looked, you know, I've always wanted to try one. It's the forbidden fruit. I've always wanted to try it. I mean, it looks, honestly, if I look at the rest of the fruit, it's great. But this tree, man. Isn't this the nature of sin? Doesn't the grass look always greener over there? It's somebody else's or it's untouchable. We're not to be over there. But man, it looks so good. If I just do this one thing, if I just, maybe just one time, one little nibble. And and it goes like this. It's like putting one little pinch of dog poop in your brownies and baking it up. Do you know what I'm talking about? But one little, somebody said yes? Did I hear a yes? Sorry. It looked beautiful, and the fruit looked so delicious. And she was convinced that what the enemy was saying, excuse me, what the serpent was saying was true. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. I'm guessing Adam was looking at her just to wait and see, which is kind of cruel. You say, well, Adam wasn't there. I've read biblical scholars say that Adam wasn't there, and they are denying what the Scripture states. Listen to what it goes on to say. She took some of the fruit, she ate it, then she gave some to her husband who was, I'm sorry, say that again. Where was he? With her! I mean, he took the stuff. He still had a choice. Gave some to her husband, and he ate it too. And at that moment, what did the enemy say? What did the serpent say would happen? Eyes would be open. It happened. Their eyes were opened. But what they see startled them. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. A lot of scholars will take this to mean a sexual deprivation. It has nothing to do with sex. Don't believe anybody that tells you this is about sex. Ooh, I see her no-no spot. She sees my no-no spot. It has nothing to do with that. All right? I'm just saying it had nothing to do with that. The reality was morally, physically, mentally, emotionally, they were laid bare. Their innocence was gone. And now what they saw was what evil can do with those things that were once thought as innocent. This is why we hate to see kids grow up. This is why Sara Lee and I didn't like to correct certain words that our kids would say because it was so dang cute. And we wanted them to stay in that innocence, in that wonder and amazement of just being a kid. And when they grow up and they hit the preteens and they start getting self-conscious about their bodies. As a kid, they'd run out in the sprinkler in their underwear or none at all and not think a thing about it. But then something happens because we live in a fallen and broken world where the enemy has control over the, the world 
We start to see things with open eyes. And we start to see things that are corrupt and bad. And then we start to think, well, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with them. And Adam and Eve came to that point where their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, which is a full word. A full word more than just the physical. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover their, themselves. As if that could fix the problem. When we sin, we like to sew fig leaves to cover our sinful nature, don't we? Do you know how fragile fig leaves are? Do you know eventually fig leaves, when they're not connected to the tree, they become like the fall leaves on our tree. They wither, fade, dry, and become dry and brittle. You can only cover your sin for so long before it's shown. So in a failed attempt, they at least tried to temporarily cover their nakedness. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden. Now keep in mind, we use anthropomorphic language to describe God. God does not have a physical body like you and I do. John chapter 4, we know God is spirit. But God was present with them. When we when we read these first three chapters of Genesis, we have to read it through the eyes of a poet. So there's a poet who's writing, this is poetic language, but it is fraught with an amazing amount of truth about the human condition. God was walking about the garden. They heard him coming. When you were a kid, you did something wrong, and you heard your parent coming, what'd you do? Be honest. You're like, look what I did. No, you take off running. You'd hide. When it became too quiet in the house, your parents are like, I haven't heard so-and-so in a while. I wonder what's going on. Been there, done that. So they, heard, they hid. When they heard him coming, they hid among the trees. Isn't that interesting? Where did they hide? <laughs> among the trees they were allowed to eat from. Maybe, maybe they hid among the other trees in the middle of the garden. Regardless, they hid from God. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where they were? Like parents, what'd you do? And we already know. We're just wanting you to confess it. Most of the time. God has exhaustive knowledge. Where are you? And the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I command you not to eat? Do you see what's happening there? What does he do? He replied, where are you? I did, did, did Adam answer directly? There was kind of a non-direct answer. There was a non-direct, what's he say? I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. He didn't tell him where he was. He just told him he hid. 
I was afraid because I was naked. He didn't admit, he's like, you know what, God, I ate from that fruit, from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which you said not to eat from. Confession wasn't on his lips, was it? God's giving him an opportunity to just, just come straight with me, come clean with me. Who told you you were naked, the Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree? Is a point blank question. Do you know the next answer? It's not in our passage this morning. It still isn't a confession. It's a scapegoating answer. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. You see him casting blame on who? God and the woman. It's the woman you gave me. Here's the key point. When the line between good and evil is crossed, everything changes. Now buckle up. Five points are going to go fast. Here's where Adam and Eve went wrong. Well, I would say Eve because she is the one conversing, but Adam was right on her heels. Okay? She had dialogue with the tempter. <laughs> dialogue with the tempter. Well, wait a minute. Why is that so bad? It wasn't bad until she sinned. Why is dialogue with the tempter wrong? Because guess who was, what, what, did, what did the author of Genesis tell us in the very first verse of chapter 3? What is the very first sentence? Come on. Those of you at home, call in. I'm just kidding. That's in the, nobody's in the office. Don't, don't do that. Uh, text me. <laughs> the serpent was the shrewdest of all the animals. That means crafty. That means he's a trickster. When you get in dialogue with somebody who is prone to twist words or to be crafty or tricky, what do you have to do? You either have to be smarter than the one who is crafty or shrewd, or you have to say, you know what, we can't engage in conversation. Because I don't have the kind of knowledge you have or the understanding you have, and until I'm able to dialogue with you, I'm not going to. Because if you get into a conversation with a shrewd or crafty person who you know is up to no good or might seem to be telling you something that is in your own spirit giving you a check that's like, oh, that doesn't seem right. That's what was happening with Eve. Before she was called the woman, the wife, she wasn't called Eve until the very end after the fall. The woman actually countered in her dialogue with the tempter, no, the Lord said we could eat of the trees of the garden. It's only the one from the middle of the garden that we're not to eat. We can't eat it or what? Is that what God said? When you get one step removed from the truth, have you ever played the phone game? We sit in a circle and you say a phrase and the phrase comes all the way around to the last person of the group and it's totally different. 
Adam was given the direct command by God before the first woman was even created. Did you know that? We read it last week. Directly to Adam from God, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat its fruit for you'll die. Adam translated the message more than likely to Eve, his counterpart. And so do you think it's interesting that the serpent came to Eve instead of Adam? But see, Eve more than likely didn't get the words directly from God. He got them, she got them from Adam. And so the serpent, who was shrewd and crafty, goes to the one that God didn't speak to directly. He's probably got more of a chance to trip her up than he does Adam. Not because Adam's any better than her, but because Adam was talked to directly by God. But there's still a breakdown in trust that happens here. Dialogue with the tempter. When is dialogue with the tempter ever warranted? I'll give you one example in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It won't be on your screen. Look it up. Matthew 1, excuse me, 4, not 1. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Forty days and forty nights he fasted and became very hungry. During the time in the wilderness, the devil came and said to him. Now the devil, in most translations, is translated as tempter. Okay? Dialogue with the tempter. During that time, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now listen to Jesus' response. Can Jesus turn stones into bread if he wants to? If he can multiply fish and loaves, if he can walk on water, you can bet he could take a stone and turn it into bread. He is so hungry by this point, and the devil or the tempter says, turn these stones into bread if you truly are the Son of God. And what does he say? No. What does Eve say? Well, not really. It's like this, not like that. The first words out of Jesus' mouth to the tempter is what? No. And then he says the words of God from the scriptures. People do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know what he's saying? I'm listening to the words of my father, not to you. Do you catch what he's getting at? Do you catch the dialogue with the tempter from Jesus? Now, it's not over. Tempter decides to come back a different day. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, oh, <laughs> the enemy's ramping up his tactics. Did God say you can't eat any of the fruits of the tree of the garden? No, it's just the one in the middle of the garden. We can't eat it or touch it or we'll die. Oh, no, God, you won't die. No, he didn't say God didn't say you won't die. You won't die? So the enemy comes back to Jesus a second time. What's he say? He uses scripture. Wait a minute. The tempter, the devil, can't even speak scripture or he'll fall into, oh, what a world, what a world, and he'll melt like the Wizard of Oz witch, right? 
No, the enemy knows the scripture better than most churchgoers. But he also knows how to twist it because churchgoers don't know the word so that they can't counter what the enemy is saying. It's true. We make up verses generation after generation after generation that aren't even in the Scripture because the enemy has given us this lie and we perpetuate it. What does he say? Jump off, Jesus, if you're truly the Son of God. For the Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus says, well, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. (laughs) What is Jesus saying to the tempter? Do you know who you're talking to? You must not test the Lord your God. Do you know what he's calling out the enemy for doing? You're trying to test the Lord your God. Next, the devil or the tempter took him to the peak of a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give you all, I will give it all to you. He said, if you will kneel down and worship me, did the tempter or Satan have the ability or capability of giving everything on earth to Jesus? Yes. Because the world is the domain of the tempter, the evil one. He is the prince of the air and of the earth. This is is the problem, right? The the world is in such bondage to sin because the evil one has been given authority on earth. But he's not been given authority over God's image bearers. You know why? Because unless we give him authority over us, he can have no power over us. And so he has to be crafty. He has to be tricky. You know what Jesus says next? Get out of here, Satan! For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The only time you should ever dialogue with the enemy is to tell him no and get away from here. He may be craftier, he may be more shrewd than you are, he may be even smarter than you are about the Bible, but if you know that you know that you know that what's coming at you is not from God, then you say, get out. In the name of Jesus, get away from me. You don't dialogue. You don't go down that route because he will trip you up on technicalities that you aren't aware of. The next thing that happens is not only a dialogue with God, but distancing, or excuse me, dialogue with the tempter, but distancing from God. Do you see what happens? He's drawing her in. It's like a fisherman trying to lure a catch with a bait. Right, Mr. Keene? Yes. And if you're a good fisherman, you know all the tactics. You can pretty much catch just about anything, even on a difficult day. And so the enemy 
He threw the line in with the hook on it and the bait. She took the bait. How many of us have ever taken the bait? I have. I've taken the bait because I believed a lie. And so through the dialogue, he gets us turned away from God. Did God really say, no, you won't die? And he, what he's getting, so she was here. She's now turned here, dialoguing, and she's now doing this. And what's she doing in the dialogue, instead of dealing, get away, you shouldn't be here, she keeps getting drawn into the conversation. And in getting drawn into the conversation, she's getting pulled away from whom? To the point that when all of this is said and done, where do Adam and Eve end up going? They hide from God. They don't seek him out to be their rescuer. They hide from him because they're afraid of what he will do. Do you think that's the kind of God we worship and serve? One who wants us to be afraid of him like this versus like this? We should bow in reverence to him. That's the right position of fear we are to have, not this. And so he pulls her away. The more the woman talked to the tempter, the more she let down her guard. Atkinson um, uh, writes an interesting observation in the woman's response to the serpent. He, he explains that the woman dropping the intimate divine name. Do you notice what happened? Do you remember if you were here last week, I mentioned that chapter 1, the term for God is called Elohim. When you get to chapter 2, it's Yahweh Elohim. Or excuse me, yeah, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. By the time you get to chapter 3, we've dropped Yahweh again, and then we're back to Elohim. And so she you, drops this term saying that he is the, the, uh, the great I am. He is now just God. Now, there's significance there. Let's read what he says. She drops the intimate divine name of God, Yahweh, and refers simply to the more distant God, Elohim. She starts to dialogue with the serpent on the serpent's terms because the serpent doesn't use Yahweh, Elohim. He uses Elohim. Do you catch the difference? The serpent demotes God in some sense by his title to just, you know, some God. Instead of saying Yahweh Elohim and she takes the bait even further. She herself then adds to what God had said, often as sinfully dangerous as taking away from the word is adding to the words of God. In verse 16 of chapter 2, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she adds, neither shall we touch it or we will die. Have you ever added to or taken away from the words of God in your moment of temptation? So then she steps on. As she's being distanced from God, dialoguing with the tempter, and she begins to believe him. Do you know what happens? He's gotten her far enough away from the truth of God's warning that he now has her 
take a look. She doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, look at the tree. She's just right there. And she's like, oh, you know, maybe. And she looks at the object of the temptation, not looking at the tempter now. And she's like, well, maybe there's something to this. I mean, I would love to be as wise as God. I would like to know the difference between good and evil. And here's a good question, philosophically so. Was there any evil in God's perfect creation in Genesis 1 and 2? The answer to that is no. There was no known evil in that perfect world. How did Adam and Eve know the difference? All they had been given was good, and God said it was good, and God said it was good, and God said it was good, and God said at the very end of all of it, it is very good, except for one instance where it's not good for man to be alone, so he created the woman out of the flesh and bone of man so that he could have it equal to him to work and tend and govern the created order in the garden and expand its borders. But there's no evil in the world. So if I'm Eve and Adam, I'm kind of curious. But do I allow my curiosity to override my trust in God? Have you ever allowed your curiosity to override your trust in God? Well, it's not going to hurt me. If it hurts me and nobody else, what's the big deal? You ever said that? She looked at the tree, saw it was beautiful, I can imagine the blossoms from the tree probably had the sweetest aroma. Doesn't sin have a sweet aroma at first? Oh, man, that smell. If it smelled like rotting flesh, would you be like, mmm, yes. Oh, baby, I want some of that. No, you wouldn't. If it was putrid, but this is the thing. We think everything that the enemy shows us is going to be, But he's shrewd, he's crafty, he's going to make it look beautiful. Oh, the tree, it's beautiful. And the fruit looks delicious and doesn't say anything about the smell, but I know fruit comes from blossoms that blossom into fruit, and some of the best fruit trees have some of the best smells. Oh, she was convinced, and she believed that there was more than what God had to offer. (sighs) Nothing is new under the sun, is there? You cannot look around you, read the papers, and not see people have given in to the lie that there is something more than God has to offer, so I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. I need to get this corrupt person out of my life, so I'll just murder them. Now, you may not say that, but look at the paper. I see murders, homicides on the Butler Eagle of all places. This isn't the New York Times. This isn't some national broad. You're talking about the Butler Eagle. Small town USA, and we have murders and and rapes, and we have all of this other overdoses beyond imagination. All because we have people looking at trees that are beautiful and eating of the fruit that will ultimately end in their demise. Believing that God, that there is more than what God has to offer. 
And so there she is in that moment. She looks at the tree. She is convinced that it's good, but there's one more step. What is it? She's, oh man, that tree's beautiful. The fruit looks so good. And then she takes and she does the one thing she told the serpent God said not to do, but he never said not to do. She touches it, plucks it, and then what does she do? She got it in her hand. She's not. <laughs> what is she doing? What is she doing? <laughs> we don't know what kind of fruit it was, but she took a big old honking bite out of that thing. And you got to wonder, were her eyes immediately opened before she handed it to Adam? We aren't told. I'm going to guess he was with her. He's watching. He, he knows that's the tree. And he watched her take a bite. What is he doing? What do we do when we're watching somebody on the sidelines? We either wait to see what happens or we're like, none of my business. Hope I don't. Yeah, I'm not going to. Mm, I don't want to be too judgmental. I don't. Oh, it's. It, they're going to think really bad of me if I say, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Who are you to tell me? None of your business. Back off, Jack. Again, is there anything new with the problem of sin? It was just, it was just the first man and first woman. We don't struggle. That was, they were so stupid. <laughs> we're the same way. We believe a lie because it's told often enough that we are confused about what the truth is anymore. And we think we're going to get extra wisdom if we just do this extra thing. You know there's a thing going on with psychedelics now? Do you know what I'm talking about? You may not even have a clue. I read way too much. But in the, medicine, in the field of medicine, in some of the more fringe areas of medicine, there are those who are trying psychedelics, like the mushrooms and all of that that were back in the 60s, because, as a cure for certain things. Now, I'm not saying there can't be cures for certain things by medicine. I'm not an anti-medicine person. But what I'm finding is that it's becoming so popular right now that it is being sought in place of freedom through Christ. If I could just get a hit off of this one thing and have this spiritual experience through this drug, then I'm going to be set free from the burdens or the situations of my life. And we believe a lie. It's not a substance that will set us free. It is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is not a mushroom. He is not some psychedelic. He's not alcohol or any other kind of thing. He's not even, he's not even over-the-counter drugs that we might abuse, thinking that we're going to be better off if we just did this or had that. It's not the woman or the man who is not our spouse. It is not trying to cut somebody down in order to get a leg up in the organization, even though that person we're trying to cut down is despicable anyway. 
they had what's coming to them. Why shouldn't I just get the benefit of it? And so they actively rebel. They partake of the fruit. They eat it, and instantly after they do that, it says their eyes were opened. And then you know what happens? The final point. They suffer in shame. I see this happen all the time. I see people commit sins. They sometimes come and talk to me about sins they've committed, and they're carrying the weight and the burden. Do you know what they're doing? They've sewed fig leaves on, but they need to talk to somebody about it. And then when you confront them about the sin that's still in their life that is unconfessed or unrepented of, they won't repent of it. or They just need to talk to somebody about it. And they continue to walk out the door and suffer in shame. You know why? Because they've not allowed the Lord to set them free. What did, uh, what did Angela tell us earlier? John chapter 8. It, you will know the truth if you obey his teachings. Right? But what does the truth do? Set you free. And if the Son sets you free, what are you? Why do we go anywhere else to try to get healing and deliverance? There is a multi-billion dollar industry of self-help. And I'm not saying there is not a place for that. But when we don't go to Christ first and foremost above all else, who is the great physician and the great deliverer, what are we doing do you know how many people I've seen go through decades of counseling and are still in bondage and shame? Either we believe Jesus is truly the answer or he's not. He doesn't give us any way other than to think about him. He draws a line in the sand every time. Either you're with me or you're against me. Either you believe in what I have to say or you don't. Either you follow me or you walk away. Either you give up your life in order to save it or you hang on to your life and you will ultimately lose it. And so they suffer in shame. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. Biblical scholar Lee Haynes writes, the serpent had promised Eve that the fruit of the tree would open their eyes to make them like God, knowing good and evil. The promise was fulfilled to the extent that their eyes were opened, but the new knowledge was not that which exalted, but which abased. They had known all along that there was a difference between right and wrong, but the distinction had been limited to the use or non-use of a tree. Do you hear what he's saying? They knew that it was wrong to take of the tree. They knew the difference between right and wrong because there was only one wrong that was in the garden at that point. It was God saying, don't eat of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew the difference. We can say they were ignorant to it, but they knew because God had told them. Now they had gone beyond distinguishing between right and wrong and knowing evil experientially. They knew that it was wrong to protect the fruit, but now they knew intimately that it was wrong because they did it. And their eyes were opened to the reality that God did not want them to have. 
at that point in time. There's some scholars that believe that as Adam and Eve grew in maturity and knowledge and understanding of their trust in God, that he may have allowed them at one point in time to partake of the tree. That is pure speculation. We don't even know that. God oftentimes puts things right there and says, I don't want you to do this, to test and see whether we trust him more than we want that. How often do we choose him over things that we want? We truly need to want him more than anything else because he wants us more than anything else. He's given us his whole self. There's nothing more he can do. He died on a cross for our sakes to deal once and for all with the problem that happened in Genesis 3. He said, they messed it up. They're now living in shame and in guilt and all people have sinned and they're now having to live out this cycle of life which leads to death. They can't fix it. I'll do it for them. But it means that I'm going to have to step into their space, take on human flesh, and do what they couldn't do. And I'm going to do exactly, I'm not going to partake of that fruit. I'm just not. I'm going to fulfill the obligations that I've given them through the law, which can't save them but only show where they've erred. But I'm going to do it perfectly because they couldn't. I'm going to seal the deal on that covenant that they couldn't hold up their end of the bargain for. And then I'm going to give them a new covenant. It's going to look like this. And it's going to be my body and my blood that will seal the deal for the new covenant. And so he'll take up sin in that space. Do you know when Jesus cries out, somebody said this this morning in one of my classes, or my class, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Do you know that it's at that moment that all of the weight of sin was on Jesus and that that moment all of the crushing blow of the wrath and the judgment of God came down on Jesus. Truly, Jesus never walked away from God, but because God cannot stand in the presence of sin, he turned his back for just that moment. The emptiness and the sin that leads to death was fully realized as every single human being, from the first humans to the last, Jesus took every sin and felt the weight, the crushing blow of death once and for all time so that in him, those of us who believe would not have to suffer that judgment. This is the goodness of God. Is God the creator of evil? No. He creates a world in which there is a potential for evil. And the potential lies within the choices of humans. And the choice is, do we choose him above all else, or do we choose that which is basically a facsimile of what we think will give us joy, peace, and wholeness? You will search and search and search until you search in vain and still come up empty-headed if your search doesn't lead to Christ. 
I say this every week. Don't leave this place unless the gospel message has pierced your heart and changed you in some way. I don't know how clear, how much more clearly I can make this. If you are saved, you don't have to pray a prayer of salvation. And it's really not even about a prayer of salvation. It is about truly releasing your life to Christ. Because he doesn't look on your lips. He looks on your heart. And if you have a heart that is now bowed to him and surrendered to him, that's what matters. So come. If you've drifted away because you've been tempted once again, or if you've never experienced the grace and the love of the Almighty God through salvation in Jesus Christ, then come. God is good. If he wasn't, he would have left us alone to our own devices so that we could die a horrible death in hell where we are all deserving of being but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life so father in this place I can't make decisions for anybody I can't take anybody else's sin upon my shoulders only you and you alone could do that It's somewhat dumbfounding, Father, that to think that you would truly love us that much, but it would take such a tragic thing to break sin and to break death and to deal once and for all with the problem of evil. I don't know how you do it, I can, theolo I can theologize about it. I could read the Bible. I could read a million commentaries and scholarly works. But God, there's still a mystery to how you conquered sin and death. Now, here's the interesting thing, Father, and we know this full well, is we don't have to know all the answers. We just need to have faith. We don't need to touch the stove in order to know that it will burn us. We don't need to try the fruit from a beautiful tree that we know ultimately will kill us in order to have our eyes open. God, forgive us. Forgive us where we failed you. We receive the grace of Jesus right now. We receive him into our hearts and lives, into the midst of this body of Christ. And we know, God, it's going to be a tough road. But with you by our sides, it's not that tough. We love you and thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. 
Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.